All right. This morning, I had the delightful experience of uh, planning on using PowerPoint for Sunday school, which I rarely do, and then also using PowerPoint for the service this morning, which I've done like twice in my entire life. And the projector is not working uh, this morning. So we have this sort of jerry rig, and I'm also, I've also noticed I tend to step out a disproportionate amount to the left versus to the right, but I can't, or I'll block the, the projector. So, that's not really interesting, that's just a fact. Uh, this morning we're going to look at Daniel chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 7. Or Dennis, you need me to unplug that so you can run it through? Is that, I was premature on that. Sorry about that. Tell me when you're ready. Very good. This is the word of God. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked. And there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims. It trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes, like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. 
All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and the most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them. Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Well, in some ways, it's, it's difficult to read a text which is just so self-explanatory and then have to say things about it. Uh, but maybe we'll, we'll pray, and then we will uh, search this out together as the Lord enables pray. Oh Lord, we would ask that you would help us uh, as we look to your word. We realize that this is given to us for our instruction. We realize that uh, in a group this size, there will be competing interpretations of some of these things. Uh, I just pray that you'll help us to understand the big picture of this chapter. Help us to understand what you are doing. Uh, help us to understand uh, more who the Son of Man is to be able to give him glory and to be able to honor you. We thank you that even though some of the imagery is difficult for us to comprehend, even though some of the historical antecedents may be obscure to us, we thank you that in the end we have confidence that the Ancient of Days will prevail, uh, that all kings and kingdoms that are in opposition to him will ultimately be destroyed, uh, that justice will be done, and that you will reign with your people forever and ever. We thank you for the kingdom. We thank you because it is a gift. 
It is something that you, in your grace, give to us. We do not earn it. It is earned by the merit of your Son. And so we ask that this morning you will help us to celebrate uh, this gift of the kingdom, help us to honor you, and help us as we celebrate communion to be very mindful that the kingdom is purchased for us through the blood of the Lamb. Be with us, we pray. Give us discerning minds uh, and active and open hearts, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps I ought to have prayed for the PowerPoint, too. Let's see. It was covered. All right. So, just a few exegetical considerations of Daniel chapter 7. Okay, just a couple. First, I think to understand this vision, you need to understand Daniel chapter 2. So, there is an ongoing recapitulation in the book of Daniel. There are visions that you're given... And then the vision, the main point of the vision is repeated. That's what I mean by recapitulation. It's repeated, but with different imagery. So the main point is the same, even though the imagery shifts. One of the mistakes, in my judgment, in reading the book of Daniel, is to read it in a linear way, where every vision set has to mean something different. I don't think that's the proper way of reading this. I think that actually you're given, just like Revelation, you're given a vision, a main theme, which is then is repeated once, repeated again, repeated again. In fact, I, I, can, I can make a long argument, I won't, but the structure of the book actually shows you in sort of in symmetrical patterns where you get these overlapping visions. That's a discussion for another day. Now, you'll recall from Sunday school and from your reading of the book of Daniel, uh, because just in case you're visiting as well, uh, the reason that we're doing this particular chapter is the church has been going through a one-year Bible reading program, and just recently you've been reading the book of Daniel, if you're up where you ought to be, which all of you are, undoubtedly. Uh, and just a comment, if you're not, if you have fallen behind in your plan to read the Bible in the year, I would just plead with you, don't, uh, don't despair. Just keep the bookmark in and forget the dates. Just keep moving the page. Keep, keep reading. Keep moving the bookmark. If it takes you 15 months, if it takes you 18 months, if it takes you two years, my guess is that probably for a lot of us, reading the Bible all the way cover to cover uh, in a year and a half is probably pretty good. Probably more than we did in the last year and a half. Right? So let's just, just wherever you are, just keep moving that bookmark. Just forget the dates, but keep, keep plugging away. You will get done, and when you get to the end, you've read the entire Bible. If you've never done that before, that's something that you ought to do, uh, and so don't, don't despair. Now, you ought to have read Daniel 2 before you did Daniel 7, obviously, and you will recall that there's the dream of the statue. The statue has the head of gold, and you're told in the interpretation, you, Nebuchadnezzar, you, O king, are the head of gold. So you're given that interpretation. What's one of the great things about the Bible? It's often you read a text and you go, I have no idea what this means. Well, just keep reading because they're going to tell you what it means. Okay? This isn't sleuthing. Uh, this is just paying attention to the next material. So the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar. The head of gold is Babylon. After Babylon, another kingdom will arise. That's what the text says. So what you do is we can do this historically at our vantage point. We can just track out the kingdoms because we know which kingdoms came after Babylon. You know, Persia, Medes and Persians, etc. Right? Rome, we can just track this out neatly. Then you have the chest of silver, the next nation, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet partly iron, partly clay. Now, 
then you get this. So after that vision, statue, head of gold is Babylon, you get this. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. That's precisely the language you're getting in Daniel 7 about the kingdom being set up and, and lasting forever, etc., etc. Okay? In fact, you will recall from Daniel 2, what happens to this statue? We can, this isn't rhetorical. You can toss it up. Yes, Nancy, that was, that was an excellent action, but no one heard the action. Uh, yeah, that's what happened. It was a, there was a stone that's hurled into the base of the statue and obliterates it. And what was special about this stone? Where did it come from? It was cut out, but not by what? Not by human hands. And so what you're being told is that something is going to happen here which is supernatural. This is not a human kingdom rising up that destroys all the other kingdoms. This is something God alone does. In fact, here's, a, here's actually an interesting read. Uh, that expression, human hands, uh, so in Acts 17, he is not served with human hands as if he needed anything. That expression, human hands, the work of our hands, it's so very, very, very often uh, tied contextually to idolatry. Idols are the work of human hands. But God doesn't need human hands to set up his temple. God doesn't need human hands to set up his kingdom. God doesn't need human hands to destroy the nations of the earth. It's something that God alone does. And so this, this stone destroys the statue. All those nations are obliterated. And then it grows around that fills the whole earth. In other words, this is the growth of the kingdom. It's a sign that God himself is going to destroy the nations of the earth because God has a kingdom he's going to establish. He alone is going to do this. Now that you're supposed to have in mind when you come to Daniel 7. Daniel 2 has four kingdoms. There's four parts. Gold, silver, bronze, clay, or iron clay. Daniel 7 has four beasts. Both visions terminate with the establishment of God's kingdom. It's a recapitulation. It's a going over the same thing. Now, probably in Daniel 7, just like the statue, the first beast is probably to identify with Babylon. It's a lion with the wings of an eagle. So it's a beast. But it stands up on two legs like a man. And it's given the heart of a man. Or it's given the mind of a man. It had stood up on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. Okay? So the inside, the being of a human is given to this beast. Now, by the time you get here, you've also read Daniel 4. And what happens in, in Daniel 4? In Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold, is reduced to an animal. His sanity is taken away. We're told that you know, his, his nails grow as the talons of a bird, like an eagle. He's like a beast, drenched by the dew of heaven, until the Lord raises him up on his two feet, and his sanity is restored. The mind of a man is given to him again. So what you have here is you have this composite image where if you're just moving along through Daniel 2 and Daniel 4, this is almost certainly Nebuchadnezzar. Now the bear, next, is the only non-hybrid animal. All of these animals are hybrids except this one. 
Okay? And it's ravenous. It's got three ribs in its teeth. And it's told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. This is a beast that this bear is going to go around devouring peoples, devouring nations. Then you have a leopard with wings. Okay? Now, if you start working this through, these are not like um, cute animal hybrids, right? This is not like a little chipmunk with wings. Uh, this is not, you know, a little bunny with, you know, three pieces of carrot stuck in its little teeth. Like, the, the, these are ravenous, bloodthirsty beasts. Lion, bear, leopard, okay? So you're supposed to read it that way. These are destructive, bloodthirsty, terrifying creatures. And the fourth beast is worse than them all. In fact, you're told how terrifying it is. It has iron teeth. Now, remember the fourth in the statue, your fourth metal is iron. So, you start with Nebuchadnezzar, you work through two others, and you end up with this terrifying beast with iron teeth, just like the legs were made of iron in the statue. Now, I think these are two perspectives on the same thing. So, in one level, the statue, Daniel 2, shows the majesty, wealth, power, grandeur, splendor of earthly kingdoms. Some of the Wonders of the ancient world can't come from Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Uh, in terms of architectural advance, in terms of gardens, in terms of all sorts of things, you know, Babylon was utterly glorious. It's the head of gold. Think even in terms of Rome. I mean, Rome was a brutal nation. But again, think of some of the, some of the te technological developments. Some of the architecture that, that people still will you know, go to Europe to view come from Rome. It is found in Rome. So you have in some ways wealth, power, glory attached to nations. But these nations are also violent and bloody. Rome trampled down the known world. Babylon conquered nations, so they were the superpower of the day. Same with the Medes and Persians. So what you have is you have these two perspectives. Are the nations rich and beautiful and glorious? Yes. Are they bloodthirsty, wild beasts? Yes. And so do you want to go and tour ancient Babylon and see the glory and the splendor where Nebuchadnezzar stands on his balcony? Is this not mighty Babylon that I have built for the, my glory, for the glory of my name? The answer is yes, and it's glorious. And God strikes them down with insanity. You live like a beast for two years. Is there glory in ancient Rome? Absolutely. Glory and power and majesty and wealth and beauty. As they crucified thousands and enslaved hundreds of thousands and ran around the known world destroying peoples. Same with Alexander the Great. I mean, Alexander the Great, he died young after a drinking binge, uh, probably from too much lead in the wine at that time. Um, but also, remember very famously, he, he wept uh, because he had, there weren't any more known nations that he could conquer. These are not nations that were civilized. These are not domesticated, you know, uh, canaries and hamsters and kittens. They're lions and leopards. Fast, terrifying, perverted in terms of hybrid. There's something, there's something wrong about these things. 
that's your perspective on the ancient world nations from God's perspective. That's why also in the book of Revelation, you get two beasts who are under the dragon, that is the devil, but you get two beasts. One represents almost certainly the religious institution of false religion. The other represents political power. And so you have these, these, these two beasts, it's, it, we represent nations. The Bible often represents nations in terms of bestiality because they're perverted and violent and bloody. And each vision ends with the establishment of God's kingdom. So if you read Daniel 2 and, and Daniel 7 together, what you end up with is you end up with a composite perspectivalism about how God views the nations. And both of them end with the establishment of the kingdom of God. Now, critical in the interpretation of this text is verse 13. This is the hinge on which it swings. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Okay. This, if you, you detailing aside, if you want to understand what this text is actually driving you towards, if you want to understand the fulfillment of this text, you have to understand Christ. So Jesus will use the phrase Son of Man frequently in the Gospels. And it's interesting. There's, actually, there's lots to be said about this that I don't, I don't have in here. Um, no one else calls Jesus the Son of Man. But it's his favorite self-designation. And you don't have Jesus worshipped as this. The early church doesn't preach about the Son of Man, like in the book of Acts. This is how Jesus refers to himself. So the question is, what does he mean? In the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel is often called Son of Man. And it's merely a reference to being mortal. It's a reference to being human. So some people want to say, when Jesus refers to himself as Son of Man, all he's doing is he's referring to himself as a human being. Son of God means he's God. It actually doesn't. There's a long category you need to work through to get yourself to that uh, particular interpretation. Um, but son of man means he's just a man. Okay. Both of those readings are, are, are wrong. Jesus does not use this term son of man to emphasize his humanity. Okay. Uh, 65 times in the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as son of man. But there are three predominant contexts in which he does. None of them have to do with him being a human being. So it's not about ontology, it's not about anthropology at all. One is in Mark 2. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, he was still the paralytic, or he told the paralytic his sins were forgiven. He said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. People realize that only God has the authority to forgive sins. That's, that's the problem with Jesus, and he's blaspheming. But he says, no, no, you need to understand the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. It's a high claim to authority and actually to deity as well. A lot of the references to the Son of Man come in, in, in context of suffering, death, and resurrection. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? So he's loading up Son of Man language here 
in terms of rejection, suffering, and death. The Son of Man needs to suffer and die. It's not using the, the, the language of King or Messiah, but Son of Man. Then in the context of betrayal and death. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. You'll also get some of this in terms of just general suffering and poverty. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So a lot of this is bound up with unique authority, forgiveness of sins, unique authority, general suffering, but specific suffering in terms of rejection, betrayal, and death. Say, well, why do you get that grouping? Why do you get this grouping of, in terms of the Son of Man language? Well, there's one more. And to me, this is utterly essential to understand what Jesus means by Son of Man. He also refers to himself as Son of Man, not only when he's talking about atoning death, but also future coming. So we read, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words as adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Father's glory, power, angels, clouds. So first of all, it's essential to remember that clouds are actually theologically significant in the Bible. Okay? Uh, they're not just merely about weather patterns. So you have God's glory cloud in Exodus. The cloud covers Sinai. Uh, the cloud fills the tabernacle. The pillar of cloud goes before them. So God's holy presence is bound up with cloud all through the book of Exodus. How do you know that God is in his temple? The cloud moves in. Okay? The Mount of Transfiguration. The cloud covers the mountain. And just like Moses goes into the cloud, Jesus and his disciples go into the cloud. They go into the presence of God. And the voice speaks from the cloud. This is God's holy revealed glory and majesty on the mount. And the ascension. Jesus is taken up from them and we're told, and clouds hid him from their sight. This is not about weather patterning. This is about Jesus ascending into the holy presence of God. He goes into the glory cloud of the Almighty. And that's where he is. He's in the presence of the Almighty until he returns again. So clouds are very significant. You're not being told, at that time people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds like, oh look, when you go outside, you know, if it's a bright sunny day and it's all blue sky, Jesus can't come back. Like that's not the point, right? The point is that when Jesus returns, he's coming with the glory of God. It's not a weather statement, it's not a meteorology. It's about theology in the presence of God. Now, God himself is the only one who rides the clouds, like his cloud chariot. Sing to God, sing in praise of his name, extol him who rides on the clouds. It's a very interesting statement. Extol him who rides on the clouds. He makes the clouds his chariot. And rides on the wings of the wind. See the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. So, you get this sort of collocation going on. 
God lives in a cloud. God rides on the clouds. Clouds are all bound up with the presence and glory and power of God. And you see this also in Jesus' predictions of his return, and also in the life of Jesus in some of the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay. Now, you might be saying, all of that's really nice, but haven't we wandered slightly far afield from Daniel 7? Oh, ye of little faith. So, where you have Son of Man, clouds, mighty one, ancient of days, brought together is Mark 14, 62, and Daniel 17, or 7, 13. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Daniel 7.13 In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. Son of Man, Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, coming with the clouds of heaven. Mighty one, ancient of days. What Jesus is doing is Jesus is saying, look, one day you are going to see me as the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. I am coming on the clouds. That's what God does. The verses that we just looked at. God is the one who rides in the clouds. He says, I'm coming on the clouds. God is the one who lives in glory. His glory is displayed in the clouds. Jesus appears in the cloud of God's glory. He's coming back on the clouds of God's glory. This is Jesus saying, look, you, want to, you will see the Son of Man. Remember Daniel 7? One like a Son of Man with the clouds and the presence of God. You're going to see that and it's me. Now, what happens in Daniel 7 after this? In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. When the Son of Man comes with power and glory to the Ancient of Days, He's given a kingdom, Daniel 2, which will destroy all the other kingdoms on the earth and supplant them. In Daniel 7, he's, by the Ancient of Days, he's given a kingdom that will exist forever. Note that the Son of Man is given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Who do we know in the book of Revelation, particularly chapter 5, who is given authority, glory, and sovereign power? It's Jesus. In Revelation 5, people from every tribe and kindred and blood and ethnicity and sociological demographic, every people group from around the world gather and worship the Lamb. All nations and peoples of every language worship him. These are just, all of this is just breaking out what chapter 7, verse 14 says. This is, this is just a quote from Daniel. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The first message of Jesus, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yes, there's Rome, this, this ravenous, terrifying beast of iron. But don't worry. God, God's got a rock cut out, not by human hands. 
these kingdoms of the earth cannot stand because the kingdom of God is being established. I am the one. I am the Son of Man. I am the Son of Man. I am the Son of Man. How will the Son of Man get the glory? And this is the thing that no one can understand. The Son of Man gets the glory and establishes the kingdom precisely by what? Precisely by what communion reminds us of. The kingdom is established not merely through sort of being more being a more powerful beast than the other beasts. The kingdom is established not by sort of fighting it out with these creatures. The kingdom is established precisely by Jesus voluntarily being trampled down by the beast and destroyed. Only to be raised to life again. My kingdom is not of the world, Jesus says. If it was, I would fight as the world does. My kingdom is from another place. My, king is not a, my kingdom is not established by sword and spear and shield. My kingdom is established by the power of God. He doesn't need human hands to establish this kingdom. He doesn't need human hands to overturn all the nations of the earth. I am the Son of Man. I come into the presence of the Ancient of Days and I am given a kingdom that will never fade and never pass away. But my holy people will live in it forever. And as I receive that kingdom in power and might and authority and glory and sovereign power, as I receive that kingdom and I am worshipped by all nations and all angels, I hold that kingdom. And one day I'm going to return to earth. And I'm going to establish that kingdom. Daniel 7 is the ascension. He goes with clouds into the presence of the Ancient of Days. And Jesus expands that in his usage of the imagery. I go into the presence of the Almighty, of the Ancient of Days. I receive the kingdom. And having received the kingdom, one day I'm coming back the same way that I went there. So he says in Acts, you will see me return in the same way you see me go. Into the glory of God, you'll see me come back the same way. Again, it doesn't mean that it's going to be a cloudy day. It means when Jesus returns, everyone's going to see him in the glory of God. Why? Because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he receives the kingdom. One that can never fade and one that can never fade away. We will live in it forever. Because the Son of Man was willing to suffer and die for us. To shed his blood for our sin. To pay the penalty of our death on the cross. And when we celebrate communion, this is what we remember. We remember what the Son of Man has done for us so that we can be kingdom citizens of a kingdom that will never fade away, of the home of righteousness, where there are no more beasts, even though I suspect there will be animals. There will be nothing that will hurt or harm or destroy on God's holy mountain in that day. Because the Ancient of Days, through the Son of Man, has destroyed and broken the power of the kingdom of the earth and established his kingdom in its place. I'm going to ask those who are helping distribute the elements of our community to come forward uh, at this time. If you're not part of that, you can just take a moment uh, to bow and to pray for the Lord. Then we'll celebrate communion together.